1: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
2: Our migrator failed and you know, there's nothing you can do kind of thing, right? So I think it's still, uh, well, mine just beta us so what am I complaining about, right?
3: <laughs> yeah, file a radar. <laughs> yeah, Tell yeah, your yeah.
2: friends and get them
3: to dupe it, too, so it'll get some attention. <laughs>
2: Hey everybody, welcome to episode 151 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Tim Mitra and I am in Toronto, Ontario, having just arrived back from New Brunswick where I celebrated Canada Day and I'm joined once again by Jaime Lopez Jr. in Seattle, Washington. How's it going? And we have Mark Rubin on the line from San Jose, California. Hello a little bit of
3: uh, ask him MT- like well it's not even officially an ask T J C it was sort of that that note about somebody going yeah, through I the entire that. backlog which is, is quite a feat <laughs> yeah uh, I don't think I would go back and listen to the entire backlog now no but it's no. insane it's a 100- hundred so uh, roughly 150 episodes probably you know hour and a half on average some longer some shorter I mean that, that's like 200 hours
2: yeah it's pretty close to 150 because I went back and and there was one episode where it was so long we did it a two at as two parts right hmm uh,
3: um, Not a couple lost really. episodes here and there along the way, but 150 episodes. So let's call it, you know, estimated 200 hours of audio. Even at 2x speed, you're listening still to 100 hours of
2: audio. Well, he said it took him a month, right? So oh, did he say, he did he specify that? Well, it says, Today I finally caught up with MTJC podcast after having listened to the entire backlog episode from one several months ago. So, so he has been through them all, but he didn't do it, like, it, he didn't binge do it, you know, but he...
3: Yeah, I mean, even still, having started, a couple of months ago, or several months ago, let's say several is three to four, I think, is the the bounds for that, for being literal. Um, That's still quite a bit. I mean, unless we are the only show you're listening to. Yeah, I don't know. Especially given that
4: some of the stuff is kind of dated by now, right? Talking about WWDC from three years ago. Yeah, we're talking about, like, like, a hypothetical
3: watch that hadn't come out yet, that sort of stuff.
2: Right. Yeah, and, and the indie apocalypse is where we, I think we started around that time, right? So, by the way, I just, as a side note, I did finally update my Twitter client to, on my phone and so uh, because i switch between the two the official podcast account and my own account all the time and i'm uh i find i don't like this update i mean it looks okay but so what did i say to him i just want to see what i replied to him from the podcast itself uh oh greg greg replied that he's a fellow completionist so yeah you didn't reply from the podcast you replied from your own personal no i initially applied replied from when he first uh his first comment here the one you've got quoted here let me yeah wow it took me several took me nearly three years to listen to every episode myself right so you <laughs> Which is basically tongue in cheek because that's how long it took us to do them. But I've gone back and listened to a few episodes from time to time just, you know, because I'm curious about what we said about things and, you know, looking for. Mm-hmm. I actually did go back and um, re, I didn't edit any of them, but I went back and fixed the audio up on some of the earlier ones, which were pretty bad.
4: Digitally remastered some of the old stuff? The old tips? Well,
2: I'm not, I, wouldn't call, I wouldn't call it remastered. <laughs> I would say, yeah, I would say mastered again or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Because mm-hmm. I don't have the original, I don't have the original source material anymore, right? I don't have space for it. Mm. So, yeah. Like the folders, I have to keep recycling them, right? So yeah, these these episodes take up a bit of space. Anyway, yeah, so it looks like Greg in, engaged with him, and he says it was very enjoyable, informative. But now I have to wait for the new ones, like the rest of us, right? We all have to mm-hmm. wait for the new ones. um What does he say here? Huh. He says, yeah, because Greg says a uh, fellow completionist. And he says not on all podcasts. So here's your answer to your question, honey But MGJC was good from the start and got better as everyone settled in and I got closer to the current time. So thank you very much, David Sinclair. Okay, that's that. <laughs> Okay. So this is the boring 151, right? There is not a nice
3: number until two hundred, right? Or or I guess before two hundred we'll end up hitting the three year anniversary in August.
2: That's true. That's true. Well I wonder I wonder yeah, we kinda of missed it the last couple of years, we always forget about it and then it's passed or whatever by the time we remember. But so I wonder if Greg had like, you know, his sesquicentennial was like one half of one plus one or something like that. I forget what he said it was, but I wonder if I wonder if one seventy five has a, you know, two three quarter plus one number in like or something like that. Anyway, anywho, okay. So that was the Ask MTJC. So, so we have some FView. Uh, I posted the view here, um, and not that it is from Ryan McLeod, the writer of the official podcast app, uh, Blackbox, which I finished by the way this weekend. Um, he posted a thing here, which I thought was would be an interesting thing to talk about because we've been talking about family sharing on and off on the podcast for a bit, and this was kind of a, an interesting thing I didn't realize. But he says I get so many emails from confused parents and kids about family sharing and in-app purchase. And he presents a radar. I guess he sent a radar to Apple, saying that um, they should really fix this. But it, yeah, this I see. Will, Will Dinkle, who replied to him on um, his tweet, um, does the same thing I do, and we use Carol and I use the same iTunes account which is we've done for many many years to so we can share things. And and I never realized that I mean, if you're on a family family sharing program, the in-app purchase is not shared amongst the various members of the family. So that's kind of an odd odd thing. What do you think about that? Even for apps
4: that are shared,
2: yeah, the app is shared itself, hmm. but the in-app purchase, I guess, because that's considered consumable, is not um, not shared amongst the various people.
4: I did not know that.
2: Yeah, so this is, thanks to Ryan McLeod for pointing that out. What do you think, Jaime? Yeah, I, I really like this radar here. I
3: recommend folks read it because it's actually, I mean, it's very sort of positive, right? And it sort of describes the situation quite well about, you know, this ends up being a lot of support because it becomes sort of unintuitive for people who are using family sharing who think, oh yeah, everything is shared, right? And right. here Ryan uh, McLeod says, you know, he understands why consumables don't make sense as a shared purchase, right? If you bought, you know, 500 Smurf berries, um, it probably shouldn't transfer everywhere. Okay, it gets that. But other things that aren't consumable that you're sort of more unlocking, like level packs, skins, hats, et cetera, as I'm reading here from the radar, should be shared because customers sort of expect that to happen, right? As sort of a, well, you say family sharing, well, why isn't it shared, right? Why, why would I need to do that? And this is probably the, the best thing here where he says, quote here, um, his current solution is generating IAP promo code to send out to the confused dads and sad 13-year-olds emailing me, which takes a lot of time away from development.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I would
3: like to see this change because it it doesn't make a ton of sense. Like, it doesn't seem like the sort of thing, like, hey, Apple is, like, grabbing desperately for every penny here. I think maybe this is some sort of weird
2: limitation in how their system is set up. And I think... because I can't imagine that they're not aware of this, right? So...
3: Yeah, and I imagine that that a lot of times the Apple ends up getting a lot of support calls
2: related to that, too. So it seems like it would help them as well. So, but to your point, uh, taking apart your, I mean, not trying to be contrarian here, but <laughs> you mentioned smurf berries. Okay. So like if you go buy, if I buy 99 smurf berries, that's one thing. But if I unlock a skin or an, uh, that's another. However, in the world of in-app purchases, they're considered, they're, they're the same kind of thing, right? There's different types of in-app purchases, like, you know, the renewable subscriptions and so And there's the consumable pieces and stuff like that. And I mean, maybe Apple could come up with a way of sharing, uh, a cache of smurf berries. If I bought 99 smurf berries, I like could, should be able to share them with the various members like that whole 99 count right but Keep in mind that this, the idea of having 99 Smurf Berries was invented by the Smurf app, not by Apple, right? So mm-hmm. whether you're unlocking a skin or, or giving access to a level or 99 Smurf Berries, they're, while conceptually they're different things, they're handled in the same way, um, in the in-app purchase world, right? In the, or in the mechanism that Apple provides for us. So it's a kind of a sticky wicket, right?
3: Yeah. I mean, for me, I imagine there's a whole system related to purchasing that probably ensures that you verily, even if you are trying really hard to get a timing attack against the app store and say okay let me try to buy this app from this device and then you know also from this device and see if I can or buy a different app I guess uh, and see if I can end up using twice as much so instead of ten dollars on my account it's effectively like as if I have 20 right um, I'm sure there's there's some sort of code that, that does that sort of you know double checking of, of how that works and maybe it's yeah. not worth like the pain and effort to try to get that to scale for something like having shared smurfberries where hey this 100 smurf berries um okay sort of like a crimson tide where we're both supposed to turn the keys to launch the nukes from the sub at the same time sort of thing we both try to use these smurf berries instead of 100 we effectively have 200 because it takes out yeah, yeah, like pot, right yeah. as, a, as a timing attack like i don't know like i'm that's wild speculation on my part um so that's where i think i could see with consumables things that you would you know repurchase on a ready basis coin smurf berries whatever the case may be gems i can kind of see that sort of thing right because it's it's supposed to be a finite amount of these things that you lose over time. You consume them over right, time. Yeah, and, yeah. and levels, it's like, okay, well, if one kid has a level and another one gets it too, okay, well, that, that's fine, right? And and maybe as a developer, it would be nice to be able to choose selectively for that. Like, okay, I would like this thing to be, um, if you have family sharing enabled, everybody gets it. And this other thing, maybe not for, for reasons, even though I think it's sort of in everybody's interest to make it available to everybody through family sharing. Uh, if yeah, only because yeah. you, you lose out on the customer goodwill as well as customer support Time.
2: True. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing about the 99 Smurf berries becoming, you know, 400 minus one if you had four members in your family, kind of thing. If if all I, I IAPs were shared, and, and I guess that wouldn't be fair to the person who's trying to sell you 99 Smurf berries. Although the person who's trying to send you 99 Smurf berries deserves what he gets, right? Um, yeah, it's an it's an odd one.
4: But it seems reasonable that non-consumable stuff should be shared.
2: So what would be a non-consumable stuff? What, what, what?
4: Well, so there's there's Apple makes a distinction between consumable and non-consumable in, in IAP. Um,
2: so. Is a level unlocking would that be like a non? consumable that, that would be a
4: non-consumable. Yeah.
2: Right. Right. So mm-hmm. that, that Additional yeah. so
4: functionality.
2: there's a ninety-nine would be like a one-time purchase kind of thing, right? Yeah, that would be consumable. Workers. Right. Right. Yeah. So hmm. strange. Or maybe they should write a way to share Smurf berries or something. So I could I could share twenty-five with you and thirty-three with you because I like you better.
4: Well, I mean that's that's <laughs> you know that's asking for a whole another level of stuff. I mean there's there's yeah. if they just use the existing gradations that they've got right now, you get consumable, you got non-consumable, and say. Consumable, fairly reasonable. You know, you're you're buying a limited supply of things. Pretty reasonable that you can't share them. That's okay. But non-consumable stuff, it's just like buying an app. Once you buy the app, you own the app. To, you don't ever run out the app if it, assuming it's, right, you know, it's right. an app for purchase. So I, I can't non-consumable products be the same way. I think it would. Don't
2: know. Yeah.
4: Mm. My guess is that they just never wrote the code for that in iTunes, and and there hasn't yeah. been enough of an uproar to to, uh, to change it.
2: Yeah. Well, it'd be interesting to see what response Ryan gets from that radar. Um, I mean, does Apple? respond to radars if there's like multiple people complaining about it or do they i, I they believe they one. do
4: they claim they do we read through the forums they'll say that they that they uh pay attention more to noisy problems than non-noisy mm, problems.
2: right so we'll share a link to the uh <laughs> the radar in the show notes i guess there you go yeah you guys can help along so i, I guess the next two um issues are related to the rumored iphone 8 or whatever they're going to call it um i guess there's more talk about um wireless charging uh coming up i, I well, I think we have this wireless base station or wireless state, um, pad you can buy for the f- for the watch. I believe, right? Like you know, the, not, other than the little um, um, charging thing, is I've seen like um, like a circular pad, or am I thinking of another phone altogether? We can lay the phone down on on it. It's got that inductive charging mechanism.
4: Well, a lot of a lot of phones in the other side of the world have that. Not not the other side of the physical world. The the other, the other
2: camp. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. And you know, they have these things even at Starbucks, where you can. Where you, uh, a lot of times you can. Da- they have a dongle that you plug into right. your phone yep. and you stick that on top of the pad and it charges it that way. So the, the technology is out there and it's not its mm-hmm. not new. Uh, so it wouldn't surprise me if they did this. It's kind of a next next step. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. How quick is it? Have you ever tried that kind of charging? I know we do. Well, the watch uses it, right? Like, Because uh, the watch uses inductor charging.
3: Right. It's a very small battery, though. So for the watch, let's see, drained to fully charge, I'd say it's maybe an hour and a half, I would guess. No, right. I haven't really right. timed yeah. it per se. It's just more like, you no know, time it would take me to get ready to to do stuff in the morning, shower, eat breakfast, maybe check up some email or something while I'm waiting for it to recharge if I've forgotten to charge it up the night before. So fi- doing something like that for an iPhone sized battery, uh, like a plus size battery in particular would be kind of interesting. I, I do think they do have like a fast charge mechanism, but maybe that's only for physical connections. I don't know if there's a fast charge mode for, for wireless stuff where it'll get you to some large percent, like 50 or 75 percent, and then sort of trickle charge the rest of the Way so I guess it's uh, right. less stressful for the batteries that way.
4: You got to figure if they right. if they have these things in coffee shops, they don't want people sitting there all day long charging their phone. They want you know, they want people to get out, so new people can get in. So it, mm-hmm. it can't mm-hmm. it can't take that long to charge.
2: Well, we have charging bays here too. Around, I noticed one at the airport today when I was getting off the plane, and I know that some malls and things like that, and some uh, well Rogers Center down you know where the Blue Jays play, and sometimes you go to rock concerts, they have a charging station because you know it's in the best to just keep your customers happy, right? Yep. Um, I guess. That so must be pretty common where you guys are too. Yeah. Pretty like common. If, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 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 yeah. So, and by the way, as Mark pointed out in a previous podcast, it's not wireless charging. It's inductive charging. It's close. It's, it's proximity to a charging pad, right? True.
4: Um, I mean, there's no wires, so technically it is wireless.
2: Well,
3: but yeah, it's, but, but it's, it's, not, it's not
4: what we normally think of when we think of wireless.
3: Right. contactless is what we want, right? We wanted to just sort of condense electricity from the ether itself is what you would really like. Comes back to that, not needing ports anymore argument, right? <laughs> Um, yeah. Other, and and the other- by the way, Tim, did, did you actually like listen to the uh, audio file? I don't know if possible to play that for folks uh, through the podcast, but it's a little YouTube clip it was actually kind of interesting because they had the sort of normal iOS charging when you plug it in. It was like, Bong. oh, and then the it right.
2: sound,
3: sounds very like futuristic space, like, like the device is powering up in some sort of way.
2: Oh, in the little video that's here. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, Only let, about let eight listen. seconds. Yeah. Let me listen to it.
4: I'm just waiting for the day that the technology gets so good that just having your phone and and walking through the Earth's magnetic field will be enough to charge up your phone. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, don't you remember you used to have those watches that would you'd wear on your wrist and just the motion of your, your yeah. arm swinging as you walked would, would uh, wind the watch. Right? Mm-hmm. So yeah. yeah, it was like the
3: eco charge or something like that. I forget which brand it is. That well, no, work. I'm
2: just talking about I'm talking about the old traditional uh, mechanical Swiss watches, right? That that um, they, you know, you had, you had the little thing you had to turn to wind up the spring while. Mm-hmm. um they there's a, there's, I'm sure there are still made uh, makes of watches that you know as your arm swings there's like a gyro in the in the watch that can keeps the the spring wound is how those uh, watches work but it, coming back to the other other rumors that are out there about the um iPhone 8 we've been t- we were just talking about just before the podcast about um the fact that there may not be touch ID um, in this new phone because of the, lim- of the inability to build one into a screen and Qualcomm demonstrated in a post from June 20 20- 28th. it is possible to uh, use touch ID through uh, through an LCD screen I posted a link here I don't know if you guys have had a chance to quickly have a quick look at it
4: I'm gonna look but you know it's one thing to, to do it once another thing to do it in a repeatably manufacturable way or low cost right
2: right-hmm yeah
3: and I don't know if this animated gif here is full to, uh full speed or if it's been slowed down or sped up at all but it does look to be around the same sort of speed that you would get from the first generation touch ID like on the iPhone 5s and maybe the 6, 6 Plus. Uh, And notably, not as fast as the iPhone 7 or iPhone 7 Plus, which is just Mm -hmm. like instantaneously, as soon as that thing um, sort of gets touched, it logs you in. There's no sort of like hiccup like you see here where you can see them press. You can actually see their thumb get a little bit fatter from sort of contacting the surface and then everything logs in. So it's not exactly slow, but it's not as fast as you might be used to if you're using one of the newer models.
2: Well, the author here does say, I found the fingerprint recognition noticeably slower, about a second between the first touch and entering home screen. So that's a long time. It's like eons, man. It's many microns. What is it, microns? (laughs) We go back and forth,
3: right? It's sort of like when the first... sort of units came out that people were trying out the new t- second generation touch id people were like it's too fast i, c- I can't even see the <laughs> notifications like oh okay well that's it's, true. It's the cinderella not cinderella the um so this whole like going back and forth on too fast and too slow is sort of like goldilocks in the three bears uh, a little bit concerned about the extremes of one I don't, I don't know what exactly is like the right sort of speed but i guess it maybe if it was tunable fast, in some way slow. like yeah. okay we make these things as lightning fast as possible and then we give you an option of like how much delay would you like for there to be on there, I don't see why they couldn't. Well,
2: that's true. You know, I, one one comment I've had, I have about um, iOS 10 in particular is there are so many gestures and touches and taps and long presses and whatever that I sometimes find I'm fighting with the phone to get it to do to react to the gesture I want it to react to, as opposed to the one it does actually react to, right? So there's almost like too much going on in these phones these days, right? So i to go back to the iPhone 3, the 3GS. <laughs> I mean, I could definitely <laughs> attest to that on
3: the um, 3D Touch for the phone where, I don't know, 3D Touch gives you like 256 levels of precision for, for pressure or mm-hmm. something like that. And really, it's it's really like two, uh, three, I guess, if you have not being touched at all, you're sort of like pressing into it slightly and then pressing into it really sort of forcefully. Right, um, right. And sometimes I'll accidentally trigger, well, I, all I wanted to do was a preview and I guess the way it was was gripping the phone, I apply just a little bit too much pressure and end up doing the complete action. So I do think there are Raps. applications for having you know the, the finer grains of precision, but it's definitely not for the sort of casual UI type stuff. I think it's more built for some sort of like instrumentation, let's say that you're building into your your app. Like um, I could see you know mobile games that have uh, car type stuff of like you're really pressing on the gas pedal and you maybe you get better at letting off the gas, letting off the accelerator as you're going through a turn or something. Okay, great, but if I'm you know, all I want to do is just preview the, um, you know, the webpage for square cash that came in or some other thing that's related that I want to just see a preview of. I don't want to accidentally pop into the whole thing, but that's something I'm still kind of getting used to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and real-time follow-up to the thing. And this isn't quite what you were talking about, Tim, but the citizen eco drive is the one that never needs a battery because it harnesses the power of light from any natural <laughs> or artificial <laughs> light source and converts it into energy. <laughs> nice. Nice.
2: Oh, some nice watches here. So I found, another, uh, as we were talking here about the iPhone 8, will will replace Touch ID with 3D facial detection. Promotion, if possible. I still can't believe I've been saying promotion incorrectly all these years. Um, yeah, the Promotion, you know, the uh, the new feature that came out with was announced with iOS 11. Mm-hmm. But yeah, they're sort of saying Apple is currently testing 3D facial detection as a replacement for Touch ID authentication. There goes our privacy again, right?
3: I mean, I don't think it's going to be mandatory, if that's what it is, right? And in terms of privacy, I'd imagine it would work very similar to Touch ID, where it's specific to that device. So if you drop that device in the water, you would have to set up that face scanning technology again on a new device, right? It's not stored in the cloud in any way that would, you know, hurt what you're you're dealing with, like the whole way the whole like secure enclave works for Touch ID. I'd have to mm-hmm, imagine mm-hmm. that you would probably just reuse that. I don't, I don't see why they couldn't. I mean, you've already got one secure place. Why, why have two secure places?
2: So I, I don't know if you remember the story of the, of the little kid, the, the father who wakes up as his son is lowering his finger onto the Touch ID sensor on his phone to open the phone. So I can just imagine Imagine the kid holding the phone over the dad's face as he's snoozing on the couch, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> open the phone he's and play with Open it. up their eyes.
3: You know, a, a lot of these things that I've seen in other competitors, and, and, and we don't really know what apples would be like, they end up falling into a couple different problems where there's, well, one, they either are completely unsophisticated and all they need is just sort of a, a raw photo of you that can get through it, right? Just like a static photo. Right, it. right. Some mm. have come up with techniques like, oh, well, it will ask you to blink one eye or smile or frown or do some other sort of combination of things. But those are still things that it wouldn't be unreasonable to get, uh, probably even from just casual video. And I'm not talking, you know, spy versus spy level of like, oh, you know, they're a government official and and they're really like spending weeks and months gaining all this data. I'm I'm sure there's probably like birthday party videos that I've taken of other people where they've made this full range of emotions. And if I just take the really high quality video and boost it up to the size of, you know, something you would shove in front of a phone, you you would run into that, right? I mean, unless they're going to start asking you to be, uh, you know, Shakespearean trained in sort of like okay, now show like disgust with humanity and joy at the revelation of meeting you know a long lost friend. Uh, I don't know how you would get around that, right? There's only so much you could do that would make it sort of sort of like people don't look like they have you know unfortunate facial ticks going on with their face while they're trying to just like <laughs> unlock and, and go the read the latest tweets or something.
2: Is Jaime having a stroke? What's going on? <laughs>
3: right. <laughs> yeah, and and is uh, I think we were talking about the pre show, I also wonder if, if the face unlocking stuff would be used for sort of, you know, limited security areas, you know, maybe getting into the phone or maybe, you know, enabling certain sort of like non-critical things, but I would guess that changing any critical information or even viewing critical information about yourself um, or payment-related information would be something that would probably still rely on, on Touch ID just because of how secure it is and how difficult it is in practice to, to break it. And the other part of this is that Touch ID related to you, Apple Pay, one of the sort of like big areas that it's being used for, like, I can't see the partner banks being okay with like, oh, hey, like somebody holds an animated gift in front of this thing. Oh, good. They made a payment. I was like, well, no, that's not the level of risk we agreed to. So unless those contracts are written in a very particular way, I'd be very surprised if this sort of went through unchallenged.
2: So you mentioned partner banks before the show too. What do you mean by that? Like you mean like the Bank of America kind of people or or what are you thinking? What are you thinking about that? Sure. Sure. Right. It's not as it's not as if
3: incorporating Apple Pay is Something you get for free. Um, certainly, there's things out there for developers if you want to use it. It becomes really easy, especially if you use third-party processors like Stripe or um, still around, not balance payments, uh, Braintree, you know that sort of thing. Um, but from the bank side, they they have to incorporate it, right? That's why you'll see announcements that hey, you know, a hundred new banks globally are enabling Apple Pay through their systems, right? There's still stuff that they have oh, to connect right. up yeah. on their mm-hmm. side
2: on the back end side. Yeah. I, again, I, like I think I mentioned earlier that there'd be a, there'd be a lot of protesting if touch ID didn't, didn't come up but I, I mean there's another example where you just mentioned the Apple the Apple pay my um, well, your Apple pay on the watch doesn't require uh, a fingerprint but um, when you when you're making the purchase but uh, like if yeah if you're using a your phone to do Apple pay you have to hold the touch ID sensor down to verify that you're actually intending to make the pay payment but um, yeah there's a whole lot of I mean it's not just about unlocking your phone anymore it's about you know making web purchases but you know on in Safari on the new Macs and someone' So forth, right? So, that's mm-hmm. a big part of Apple's game right now. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Um, so my friend Cesare Roki uh, posted a link the other day um, on Twitter and caught my attention actually this morning uh, about uh, PhotoBucket and um, I don't know if you guys have ever done any sort of uh, posting um, online for like an eBay item or whatever. One of the things I think one of the services that eBay is always offered in Amazon as well when you're selling things on Amazon is this service called PhotoBucket which lets you if you don't have a web server to host an image lets you post it, upload an image you know through their mechanism. Mechanisms and it gets hosted uh, on Photobuck. I believe that's a choice you can make to do that, right? Um, in my case, I've always just sort of thrown up an image on my own server and just uh, posted a link to it there. But um, that was a free service until very recently, and now a lot of people's uh, asset pictures on their various items on Amazon or on eBay have now disappeared with a please update your account to enable three-party hosting um, image that basically says that these people are now... Uh, want money to be able to uh, host these pictures. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, they've probably been doing it for all these years and for no reward, and who, who can afford to do that forever, right?
4: Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I saw this article, too, and it's kind of surprising that they would just turn it on without really warning anyone.
2: Right. Mm-hmm.
4: You'd think they'd phase it in slowly to, to not alienate all their customers all at once. But, uh, yeah. yeah, it seems like... Um, well, the timing is perhaps unfortunate, because people are calling it ransomware and comparing it to some of the right. hacking that happened a couple of, couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in some sense, it's it's similar I mean it's 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 certainly not uh, as malicious because people of course they opted into using the service and and they probably did sign something somewhere that said that that they give permission for, for photo bucket to do this at some point in the unspecified right. future uh, still it doesn't it doesn't come across as, as being a very nice thing to do
2: no especially when they're not they're looking for400 dollars us or 399 us to as an annual fee to be able to use their their uh, right their service it's kind, that's kind of steep when you're trying to sell something in Make like twenty five dollars or whatever you're making off selling something on eBay, yep. right? So yep, yeah, it does mm-hmm. seem pretty mm-hmm. steep.
4: Makes me wonder if it's yeah. just a desperation ploy because they're they're going out of business or something like that.
2: Could be, could be. So I mean, like, aren't there? I mean, Greg was saying he pays you know seventy dollars for uh, an Amazon service where he gets like a terabyte of space or something crazy like that, right? Mm-hmm. So and in, and Dropbox is doing free image hosting and um, Google is as well, right? So nothing to stop you from putting a link to an asset there as well. So maybe these guys are feeling. Feeling the squeeze, right? Could be, but again, yeah. it, it comes back to this nicely into your not relying on third-party uh, tools. You know, yeah, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if some apps are using PhotoBucket as well, right?
3: Yeah, I was actually a little bit surprised that I mean, okay, I understand eBay because of its history, where and, and how old of a company it is, that there would be people who wouldn't have you know, services that they could pull their own photos from, and that maybe eBay itself, for reasons, didn't want to host all these photos itself. I, I get that Amazon on allowing sort of arbitrary links to show up as photos kind of surprises me. That seems like it would be a really bad idea because in this case, uh, for those of you driving at home who are listening to this, um, what you get when you hot link one of the photo bucket images and you haven't you know paid their uh, kingly ransom? But what do you say, Tim? Three hundred ninety nine US. Yeah. Um, you end up getting this sort of static, like hey, third party hosting, blah blah blah, image, and that's kind of benign as far as these things could go, right? Like you've, I've seen tons of comments on Slashdot and Reddit related to this very topic that were like, oh, I found somebody you know hot linking stuff from my site, and so I checked the referrer code and I showed an image of various parts of the human body that you would not want to see on a you know on a daily basis while you're browsing something like an amazon so i'm a little bit surprised that just from a customer experience standpoint they allowed that to happen considering that amazon has always sort of had the ability to uh, either offer something like an s3 bucket that could sort of seamlessly link in when they started having these um, sort of smaller third-party resellers or from the get-go where okay well you know we want like i don't know sony to have pictures of this and we want to control sort of how that's cached and deal. with so sony why don't you upload this you Know, product catalog of information to our system right and, and I don't know if there was like an old rights battle related over that but it, it still kind of surprises me that this is like left open for random arbitrary things to be shown there it, I'm actually quite shocked that there hasn't been a story somewhere that like oh no the amazon homepage showed that you know some person's orifice in my my child was scarred for life sort of story right it seems like a really easy one for the news to come up with if they wanted to there's yeah, certainly enough yeah. people for that to happen
4: yeah even if Amazon is screening links you know it just takes one Redirect and it all falls apart.
3: Right, right, right. right. Yeah. And I mean, I, th- this seems like a really ham fisted way of handling it. And and maybe that's actually what Photo Bucket wants, right? Like maybe they're like, look, anybody who has any serious number of photos that they want to move over and deal with in this sort of way, they will pay the money rather than losing all of that time of, right, right. of migrating to another service or their own sort of implementation. And with this sudden, like, scorch the earth sort of method, they will get rid of all of the. The the freeloaders immediately, right? Right, Like, if that was their goal. So, Mm -hmm. might be quite a a, a cunning tactic to do this, as uh, sort (laughs) of harsh and cold as it is.
2: Right, right. Speaking of bullying, or or, there's another story here at the bottom of this page Amazon accusing Walmart of bullying in in cloud computing clash. And what it says is that Walmart is um, encouraging be safe here, um, some of their suppliers to not use AWS as a storage re- vehicle for storing uh, images. And, and this is in light of the, the heating up of um, competition from Amazon since Amazon has just bought Whole Foods, right? And I guess they're both, you know, they're both running stores and they're competing with each other in that sense, right? But I don't know if you guys saw that, but it was just sort of a interesting. When you, I mean, you mentioned um, the sort of coercion or suggestion that, you know, you might want to use a different service kind of thing. Um, Walmart in fact is doing that. And who would they mention? And it was some big, um, yeah, because apparently Walmart wants people to use Azure, which is a Microsoft service, right? Yeah, so Mm. they were going after, they were trying to convince Netflix, Airbnb, General Electric, and the CIA to not use Mm. um, AWS, according to this uh, Gartner Research Company. Interesting stuff.
3: Yeah, this this one sort of makes, like the headline sort of seems like, oh no, Walmart's being bad here. But I think it makes a lot of sense if you're... Wait, Walmart's just started being bad now? I mean... <laughs> I know they get a bad rap for that, but I think I'm on their side with this one. Where I'm not saying they should necessarily tell all their vendors and and so forth um, and and people they acquire like, hey, you know, you need to move off of AWS because AWS is a really good platform, and it's sort of non trivial to have a a multi cloud sort of setup or or migrate from one cloud to the other. Um, and sort of their point is is brought up here that sort of came to my mind before I even read the article was um, it shouldn't be a big surprise that there are cases in which we'd prefer our most sensitive data isn't sitting on a competitor's platform.
2: Right, right.
3: Well, that's pretty smart, yeah. right? Like you know, Amazon comes back and says, hey, like, you know, this is encrypted and people can't see it. It's like, sure, maybe you can't see exactly what the data is, but you see that the data is coming in. You see patterns and traffic. I mean, I guarantee you that they can shape the traffic of how that's working, right? It'd be ridiculous if they didn't, because they wouldn't be able to control against um, DDoS attacks if, if that was the case. And so I think there's a lot that can be inferred from, you know, what is going on at this Walmart vendor, right, and and then use that for a competitive advantage.
2: Well, it's like, I don't know if you know this or not, but my print and prepress days, um, I worked with Walmart um, at a company where we were we were producing their fly, their flyers, but we also worked with other Canadian retailers as well. And um, there's a lot of competition. I mean, things that get put into data banks like this, like image banks like this, can go in months before the product hits the shelves. You know, and there may be some flyer or whatever that they're working on. So, I could I, it's a good point that you said about the fact that that you wouldn't want competitive stuff um, out there on a competitive server because what's to stop them from pawing through it and seeing you know what products they're going to be carrying and that kind of stuff right notwithstanding pricing and things like that which they they all try to keep close to their chests until they, they get a chance to put it on the streets right so it's highly competitive world retail mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm.
2: yeah anyway what did that have to do with uh, what we were talking about what were we talking about uh, we were talking about the free forever oh Chesaree free is yes, not free right. forever article
3: and that happened to be linked at the bottom of that article yes that's true
2: yep all right
3: so, honey, what do you got for us next? I have a blog post here regarding faster logins with password autofill in iOS 11. So this is the thing that was debuted where you can sort of, as a user, if you're logged in, let's say like we were just talking about Amazon, let's use that as an example. So you you have a Amazon.com login, and let's say you're not using something like 1Password, and you really would like to not have to sort of remember what's going on there. This autofill sort of makes it easier. It's, sort of, as far as I can tell, even easier than you normally would have gotten with the... Um, Safari keychain, right? So say, like, you know, this user is like a Chrome user, for example. Um, In this case, you end up with getting the sort of like the predictive texts, the like the auto completion sort of stuff that you'll see above the keyboard. If you set things up sort of the right way here with iOS 11, that will show up as an option here for the user where it's like, oh, password for, uh, in this case, they use what? PatrickBalestra.com shows up. And from the client side, this is actually, as far as I can tell, pretty simple. Um, You set up the text content type for your, your text field. So in this case, they show a username and a password text field and they set up the content type as username and password like you would kind of expect. And um, the other thing you have to do is on your server side, oh, I forgot to mention, you also have to have uh, an entitlement on there for associated domains, sort of like you would do for, um, Uh what is it, application linking. And you set up the very same kind of entitlement where it's like, okay, presumably you own amazon.com in this example and you have access to that server and you can put up a file, a JSON file up there that says, you very here's the credential here. And I think the credential probably comes from iTunes Connect or something Didn't get that part. But it works very similar to the universal links that it sets up. Hey, like an app starts with this name and comes from this location that's ours. And so that will allow the system to give you the sort of easy way of of unlocking stuff on there. So people can just sign in using the identity that they already had rather than sort of like having to remember or use sort of alternatives like we've mentioned before. Mm -hmm.
4: Yeah, I'm pretty excited about this. I I think I was talking on this a couple weeks ago, that that uh, for me this is going to be kind of a game changer because I depend on on the iTunes keychain sharing, sorry, um, the uh, iCloud keychain sharing uh, to remember my passwords for me. I can't remember passwords, especially when I use the you know, the auto generated ones that are really long and random looking. Um, so th- to extend that to to uh, to apps, I think will be an amazing thing. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, mm-hmm. and
3: this this article also has a link to looks like session two zero six from WWDC introducing yep. password autofill for apps. I've not. Actually Actually, gotten around to watching that one? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Is it uh, yeah. pretty similar? Like, is it yeah, like much more involved in this sort of thing?
4: No, no. It's a pretty. It's actually a pretty simple technology. Uh, I don't think they even needed a full session to to go over right, the whole yeah. thing. Uh, but really useful. Yeah, they even so, talked about
2: it in the in the platform state of the union. Um, Eliza I think covered it right, but or no, maybe that's the what's new in iOS I believe. But yeah, you just create a file here. You know, like I think I mentioned it before. You mentioned you create a JSON file on your server called app hyphen app sorry apple hyphen app site association and um i don't know if you've ever done any um there's like a um there's a code you can put on your site if you want people to know about your your if you're on coming from a mobile app you can send them to the app store with an with a ios version of their of your website or app Um, we do that on our own on more than just code i got links from you guys and and then uh post up suggestions to people if they if they're using their uh, mobile app but coming back to you put this this json file on your server and you you also create the association in, in the entitlements, and it marries those up and just you know compares them. And then what if those all match up, then, then you can enable or you have enabled autofill mm-hmm. using, again, the cl- iCloud uh, passwords that Mark was talking about, right? So yeah. yep. interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with,
3: uh, with Swift, this is pretty easy to do,
2: like contain this around
3: like pound availability uh, pragmas. So you can say, okay, well, um, like I checked that in iOS 10, the text content type of username and password, they don't exist. So, I wouldn't want to sort of put that in my code and then watch it explode on anything that's not iOS 11. It's just like, yo, I can't find this thing, unrecognized <laughs> selector or whatever it is that it would send. Um, and I think Objective C now also has a very similar sort of pragma for that. So, rather than doing sort of the old school, like yeah, system true. version is equal to, I think you can actually do checks similar to Swift. I've, I've not actually seen that session yet, nor have I tried that out. But
2: yeah, no, um, I believe, I think it was an, avi- they added like an availability, if I'm not mistaken, to Objective C. It was one of my notes. Yeah, I think uh, that's right. Yeah. Yep. And there was you know great cheers from the crowd. Yeah, so pro tip for people on that one. I've saved
3: you from a, a horrible <laughs> crashing bug if you hadn't thought about that one. You're really enthusiastic and you've already upgraded your devices uh, to the public or developer betas. Yep. Can
4: What's next time? Huh? Converting hmm? BXC apps to Swift.
3: Yeah, right. some high-made guy posted this, right? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Know. This one is uh, from Ibrahim Ulakaya. I've probably butchered that name, so I apologize if you're listening to this episode. But in any case, they are in Iowa engineer at Firebase. And this article is a uh, slightly older. It's from April of this year, but it sort of came to my attention where they they had reference apps um, for iOS related to using um, Google Cast, the streaming protocol. And it's kind of a good sort of look at like what they went through. So they decided to not manually convert. They wanted to get sort of as much of the bulk of work done programmatically as they could. And they used uh, a couple of things. So if you sort of the TLDR, if you go to the result at the bottom of this article, those blog posts to talk about how they used uh, Swiftify, which I think we mentioned before. Uh, I don't recall what episode that was. Sort of an automated tool that will convert Objective-C to Swift. And I think at the time we'd mentioned it does so in a sort of mechanical sort of way, sort of a direct translation. It doesn't do any Swifty things like, you know, making things protocol oriented or using enums and structs and stuff. I think it just says, hey, this is what it would be like, you know, remove these braces, remove these words, add these other things. And uh, when I read the sort of inner guts of the Article that went about as well as I would think. There were still tons of compiler errors, and it took them. You know, I think they said a handful of days, sort of going through and checking to see what the, the mechanical tool did and, and what does or doesn't match with you know what you would expect to see in compilable Swift. And there's also sort of um, some good sort of tips at the bottom, like um, I think Greg has said this one: like never use the uh, unwrapping symbol, the exclamation right. point, yep. you know, unless you have like no other choice because it's sort of saying verily, I am saying for sure this will be here and probably we should be really sure that that's the case. Um, and replacing those with the if lets guard lets and optional chaining, which I think are much sort of nicer ways of, of doing these things that, you know, you can help recover from these sort of exceptional conditions instead of just crashing and, and having a terrible user experience.
2: Right. Yep. Yeah.
3: And apparently they also used uh swift lint as a tool to mm-hmm. force the swift style guide, which um, I mean, kudos to them on that one. I mean, I didn't think they would go quite that far for a reference app. it's the sort of thing I tend to see on sort of larger teams where you would sort of want to enforce a little bit of predictability and, and how the team is writing Swift. So I thought that was a quick note. I don't really recommend this. So if you're listening out here and you're like, oh, wow, you know, we've got this legacy app. It's, it's been around since, you know, the app store was, was invented and we've got a million lines of code. It's like, okay, I, I don't know that you should do this because this seems like it would be a really painful way to go rather than just yeah. sort of rewriting the app to begin with. Um, right. yeah. But for something like a <laughs> reference broke, app, fix it. It. makes sense.
2: Yeah. 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 Yeah, I still have some maps on the App Store that don't, that haven't been converted to Arc yet, and they still still running because we're you know we did all the memory management by hand. But mm-hmm. but you, we uh, I was going to say that that point about never using uh, a force unwrap that wouldn't pass Swift lint if you ran Swift lint on it. So I, I know, and it's funny like you can talk we talk, we do use Swift lint at at uh, the place where I work, and um, I've actually found a few things where Swift lint has actually helped me um, fix a few things that I was struggling to fix. Right, um, I'd written them in a sort of more long handed way. Like declaring arrays or something like that, or with a type. Um, and SwiftLint came in and said, "Oh no, I'll do it this way," which is the sort of more shorthanded way of doing it. And um, you know, um, when I was when I was writing the code by hand, I was sort of struggling with it. But when I ran it through SwiftLint, you know, it kind of helped me. It made the suggestion to clean it up, and and it was uh, it was um, much better. So yeah, SwiftLint can you can actually learn things. And SwiftLint was written by um, I think JP Simard of Realm was involved in in authoring SwiftLint with one or two other guys, I believe. But yeah, so those were the Realm. Do do some pretty good, um, pretty good tooling, so um, you can rely on it. And of course, you can tune SwiftLint too by um, tweaking the configuration file to to be super strict or not strict, or you know, create create the only exceptions that you want to deal with yourself, right? So tabs versus spaces, kind of stuff, right? That makes can, my teeth can, turn green. Can
4: you force that all of your variables are made up completely of emojis?
2: Um, probably, probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that SwiftLint does, too, right? Like you can, you can, it, it basically, you can um, have it show up as they basically show up as warnings in your code if you run it locally on your in your xcode or you can run it on the command line with an xc build xcode build command, or you can also um write, like we have it where you can write it into your your uh, your build servers as well right so mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. found that it's all well i guess not just me but our team has found it's a whole
3: lot easier to use as a cocoapod so it's something that doesn't actually get put into your shipping app it's used largely for um other Expert phases mm-hmm. yeah and that works really well because if you want to get the updated version all you have to do is just change the Version in your pod file and your like your build server ended up picking that up too. Um, mm-hmm. We'd used before the can't remember if it was a brew method or if we had some sort of thing that was pulling it down, and that ended up sort of becoming sort of a hassle. I think anytime you're trying to worry about sort of like a git like a GitHub project or submodules and other stuff, you're, you're heading into a world of hurt. And for us, it was just <laughs> easier to use a CocoaPod for that, and the dependency is something we can always rip out. So kind of getting up, back right. to the point right. of like third party services, like we could always decide, you know what, we're not going to use this SwiftLint thing where it broke, or we want to move to to, you know, happy fun time Swift lint. The, you know the, the cool fork uh-huh. that everybody's using in the future. We can always do that because it's not part of the critical shipping code. Huh, interesting.
2: And you guys run your own configuration file on it too, or, or do you use one in the CocoaPod. Ooh,
3: that's a good question. I don't actually know where that's, that's checked in, but we do have one that is uh, slightly customized. I think very lightly. I don't think there were more than a handful of things that we decided as a team we wanted to go with versus the stuff you get out of the box. Right, right. Okay.
2: Cool. Well, I mean, I've tried that Swifty. Uh, what's it called? Swift, blah, blah. blah. Objective-C to Swift uh, website. Swiftify. Mm-hmm. Um, I tried it with, with very, very unsuccessful attempts um, a few times. You know, a couple of lines of code here and there, but if I tried to take like a whole class and throw it in there, it it's just just, uh, like I said, it was a world to hurt. So, yeah, and it, have, it might it vary like
3: that. too, right? Like even the Swift migrator from version to version will end up having, like the official Swift migrator will have like weirdo issues. And heaven help you if you try finding an old, what is it, 2014 example from WWDC and you try to run this migrator on that, Like it will not work. I, I guarantee you, like you might as well just sort of look at and sort of get the, the general concept of what that code was trying to do and then just rewrite it yourself from the examples that Apple has.
2: Yeah, I found that the migrator sometimes will... Like if it's a simple enough file, it'll go through and find the fewer things that are sort of need to be adjusted, but sometimes on larger, larger projects, it, um, it's, says it's going to fix a whole bunch of stuff but then after it's finished fixing it you still have a whole bunch of angry red um errors that you have to go through and one by one fix so it's not a not a it's not a guaranteed solution using the migrator as you said yeah
3: and the funny thing that like i understand why that happens that oh it didn't do this thing it was supposed to do um the thing that i find a little sort of befuddling is that it will sometimes not do stuff that it's full-on supposed to do like oh right. um, in old swift um enums were you know caps case or something whatever it is you know like right. for yeah, letter capitalize, yeah. and now it's like no no all the cool things to have you know lowercase stuff all right well we thought we'd converted all of our enums and then you would end up being the lucky one finding the easter egg when you'd, you'd go modify some part of the project it's like oh sorry mm-hmm. this thing's a violation this doesn't exist like what oh man why didn't it change that one how was this compiling in the first place on everybody's machine yeah. it doesn't make sense but yeah just my- mysteries of the of the swift compiler i suppose that somehow it, it
2: decides to work
3: and not work depending on its
2: mood mm-hmm, mm-hmm. i've just uh downloaded uh, 9.2. I was working with it on the weekend on a few things and um, trying to fix some stuff. And it would basically just said, you know, that uh, when it, when it would say, Oh, this, this file needs to be updated because it's, it's written in old Swift, old Swifty with an E on the end of it. And um, it would say that the Xcode compi- or migrator failed and, you know, there's nothing you can do kind of thing. Right. So I think it's still uh, well, mine just beta software. So what am I complaining about? Right. <laughs> yeah. File a radar. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> Tell your yeah. friends and get them to dupe it too. So it'll get some attention. <laughs> right, right. hmm. Cool. Alright, so should we move on to our picks? Sure. Sure. Alright, so Mark, do you have a pick?
4: You have a pick. I actually, have a couple of picks today. Believe it or not. Uh, technically, you could argue that I have uh, 151. But mm-hmm. I'll go there. No, so, um, <laughs> actually, this my first pick is. How can you beat that? By the way,
3: no, I don't think I can. And, and somewhere out there, listening and and shaking his fist mightily at his headphones. Yeah, Greg or, just twitched.
2: <laughs> yeah, Greg's head exploded right now. Yeah. Yes.
4: So uh, this
0: it is actually the
2: voices crying out in the night. Yeah. Right. <laughs> What's the line? Obi-Wan says.
4: <laughs> so this is actually more of a, I, I would call this a meta pick rather than a pick itself. So what it is, is a is a list of picks or a list of links uh, put together by a guy named Robbie Allen at Unsupervised Methods. And it's 150, with the titles, 150 over 150 of the best machine learning NLP and Python tutorials I've found. And really it's, it's just a, like I said, just a list of links to, to a whole bunch of articles and tutorials and cheat sheets and websites and blogs all related to machine learning and, and affiliated things like that. So uh, I haven't even you know started to have to scratch the surface and go through all these, uh, but you know some of them look kind of interesting. Um, some of them are links to Stanford courses. Some of them are are just uh, articles people have written. Uh, but uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff. So you know if you have any interest in the stuff, there's probably at least a few that that you'll find you'll find interesting. So we'll put the link in the show notes and and check it out. Let us know. If it's, if it's useful
3: for you, I was going to say this This is quite the compendium here. Um, and sort of bonus points to these folks for having their blog named Unsupervised Methods. Right. That's <laughs> like, a thing you would do, supervised versus unsupervised learning. learning. Yeah, yeah. And that's right. I, I sort of just randomly scrolled in here and I got to uh, Sigmoid Neurons, which I don't even know what that is, but it sounds really cool and mm-hmm. very sort of Star Trekky, like the techno babble that would be screaming about the Sigmoid Neurons impacting yeah. the warp core or something.
4: Yeah, actually the sigmoid neuron is, is is one of the key fundamental pieces of, of a neural network. It, it basically says that's the 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 function the mathematical function that it uses to decide whether the neuron is turned on or off. Uh, and really is it's just a, it's a very steep S curve. So if the inputs have a value that are very small, this thing will, will stay off. If they have a, a value that are large, this, this thing will turn on because it's the upper part of the S. And if it's kind of in the middle, it's a smooth but very steep transition from one one to the other. So it's called a Sigmoid, really just because it's shaped like an S and it comes from the Greek letter, I believe. But it sounds cool. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it does. And your your explanation actually helped illuminate what that was. I think I get that whole idea of using like a thresholding sort of thing to figure out yeah. like how definitively is this on or off. Right,
4: right. Pretty mm-hmm. simple concept with a, with a fancy name. Yep. Okay, my second pick is actually uh, something that was announced at WWDC uh, a month or so ago, uh, but I just discovered it not too long ago, which is kind of. A useful thing so it's in the uh, in iOS 11 in the camera app if you scan a QR code without the name of a network in it then it will pop up the camera app will pop up a, a dialog box asking if you want to connect to that network now this is kind of an interesting thing because Apple has never ever before exposed the the changing of a network connection to a user anywhere except through the settings app mm-hmm. and you know a lot of people have wanted for years to be able to, to change the network connection inside out of an app. Now, this doesn't go quite that far, uh, but at least it's kind of moving in that direction of loosening things up. So, so you can join the network without actually you know, knowing what the name of the network is. Um, if you know, if you go into, say, a Starbucks or something like that, and you want to join the network, they might have a QR code there. You just scan that with a camera, and boom, you get this thing popping up asking if you want to join the network. I think it's kind of a cool thing, and it's it's potentially showing that Apple's moving in a direction of, of opening things up in, in terms of networking, and maybe, maybe they're trying out some technology uh, that... Uh, iOS 12 will will expose to users inside of apps where you can scan a QR. You can already scan a QR code inside inside uh, using AV Foundation methods using AppDrop. Uh If you if, if potentially they open that up in iOS 12 or even somewhere before then, where you can use those codes that you scan to access a network, that would that would open up a whole new world of of things you could do with accessories and and uh, and, and you know dedicated network connections and things like that. So it could be pretty interesting.
2: Well, it seems you have to pass on a sticky note with a, with a password on it, which is what usually happens, right? Or, right. Um, but we AirWatch does something similar where um, when you register a device for AirWatch, it sends, it emails you a QR code, which you then scan with your app, and then it, it registers the device. So it's kind of cool. I mean, it's, it's, good, it's good that Apple's kind of getting into this game. And uh, also the fact that the, the camera app now is a QR scanner or uh, like a barcode scanner, because before we had to use apps like Red Laser, which I think is owned by Amazon, um, to, right. to that's, that's what I use to scan, uh, you know, QR codes and things like that,
4: right? Yeah. So, that, so that's been available since iOS 10. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, definitely, definitely a good addition. I've used it inside apps before. So you don't but, have to go. But, the ca-
2: but using the camera as a QR scanner is that's the new piece, right? And also being able to configure networks.
4: No. So the, you've been able to use the camera, I believe, since I was 10 to scan QR codes. Uh, well, well, maybe, well, maybe not. Maybe not. How would, you get, right how would you now. get the, yeah, it's, it's not clear how you would get the result
2: out. It should, tr- it should throw you over to a, to a website or something, right? Yeah. So, so Mark, I
3: think what you're thinking of is that they added the, was like CI detectors or QR codes and stuff at some point along the way, but you would have to use that for um, AV Foundation sort of stuff, or, yeah. or maybe Core Image stuff. I forget which. No, a- yeah, it. so
4: AV Foundation—it's definitely available in AV Foundation because uh, I know 100% because I've used it. Uh, uh, but but just for decoding the QR code, uh, what's new now is that the, the camera will pop up this network connection. Now I, I thought that uh, the camera could could scan a, co- a code in iOS 10, but I guess not. Um, and it still can't scan a generic. QR code and give you just any result out of it. It's specifically for networks in iOS 11, but it's still it's still kind of a huge thing, I think.
2: Yeah, it's cool. Just on so, kind a of side note here, Jaime, I, I see um, an ad for an Amazon Lightning cable with a braided cable. <laughs> we were talking <laughs> last was it last week? We we're talking about uh, cables and how they they break. Yeah, if it wasn't last week,
3: it was maybe the episode before that. That the um, the sheathing will will break sort of rather easily compared to how I think I described it as. Uh, soviet style engineering of like these ugly plugs that have this like accordion style thing that like it it looks terrible um it has a lot of beef to it but they 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 never tear it's it's impossible you can use cables from like the 1980s and they won't tear right (laughs) nylon braided from amazon basics too huh interesting Mm -hmm. this is not as cheap as I thought it'd be, but maybe there's sort of a floor because presumably since Amazon's got their name on it, they're going to be certified. So there's not one of those fly-by-night companies that, you know, you, you buy the thing for $5 and then, hey, this cable stopped working. When I got a new update to iOS, I was like, yeah, it's because they didn't pay the toll price you to get on the, the uh, MFI made for iPhone or made for iOS, I guess, program. I've, I've had that happen mm-hmm. before. These look
2: nice, with the cable. It's interesting that I, I've had this happen to me recently, but um, buying stuff from some things on Amazon that don't apply to prime like you have to pay shipping on top of uh, having a prime account have you run into that much oh that that could be like a
3: whole show topic in and of itself so there's <laughs> there's stuff that is sold by amazon there is stuff right, that is yeah. fulfilled by amazon and then there is stuff that is sort of third-party stuff that is neither sold by nor fulfilled by amazon okay so yeah, I, I i'm constantly um, filtering down to prime only so to mm-hmm. get that first filter and then oh and then you still have to check to make sure that the actual model that you are Selecting because sometimes I say, "Oh, this model is being sold, you know, by Amazon," and then you click a, diff- a slightly different color, a slightly different size, and it's like, nope, it's being mm. sold by Fly By Night LLC," and you're like, "Oh, <laughs> at a right. much higher price, yeah, yeah, or plus, or, sugar, or much yeah. lower quality, right?" I've had uh, I've had to return a USB speaker, and that was clearly not even close to the same thing. I mean, it was like the sort of thing you would get at a flea market, right? This this cheap knockoff version of what I actually wanted to buy.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. I would spot. Uh, from prime uh, some you know, you know razors disposable razor blades replacements and I ordered a something like a 20 pack of sort of a you know a more premium type of blade and what I got sent was a five pack of the of the cheapest ones you could possibly get yeah. from this from this third-party source hmm. yeah the good news is is that if something like that happens amazon will intercede you you basically contact amazon and, and they they credit you and uh give you the the return authorization and all that so that you can ship it back to the to the original vendor, which is nice. You don't have to. You don't have to deal with this potentially vanishing, uh, you know, unscrupulous third-party company trying to sell, uh, sell you this stuff. Mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. Oh, and and Tim, as I'm looking at this, besides the braiding, so I I tend to never have problems with the lightning cable fraying, like in the middle of the cable. Yeah, or so in the middle end, is yeah. like you know the white sort of cable part. It's always right as it sort of connects into either the wall plug or as it connects into the, the you know the part, the business end that goes into the. Own. And I see what they did here beyond just the braiding is they added like a, a very slim line version of what I'm talking about when I when I talk about this uh, like heavily engineered, impossible to break sort of power cables. This has that same sort of concept where it's got sort of a, a ridged sort of thicker bending area that we can flex a little bit more than the right, right. sort of very delicate sheath that is uh, what you get from the official Apple ones. So I'll be interested mm-hmm. to see if anybody's um, – have you tried these? Anybody tried these? I've, I've not seen sort of like how they do quality work. Was.
2: no like i said i reinforced m- some of my older cables with um with uh, heat shrink tubing right but because i'm i'm convinced it's the heat from the from the charging that's that's melting the the ends of these cables right so mm-hmm. and as they as they fray you know the ground connection gets weaker and weaker and takes longer to charge your devices right so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so since i don't have a pick this week, these um these cable choices will be my pick <laughs> craziness <laughs> all right what else you got for us Jaime?
3: i have two i guess they're not really picks they're more like tips of the week um the first one comes from Laura Savino. She's an iOS developer. I'm not even sure where she is right now. I think she was at Khan Academy at one point. But in any case, she's sending out the semi-annual reminder that if your simulator list has gotten unwieldy, especially with stuff like, you know, beta updates for your Xcode, the devices manager lets you choose which simulators to display. So if you're going into your run list like, oh no, this is so terrible. I I really just want to get, you know, an iPhone 5S. Why do I have to see iPhone 8.3 and iPhone 8.2? It's like, we don't even support those anymore. Um, I didn't even know that you could you could do that I thought you just had to delete them yeah I've been deleting them yeah yeah I didn't realize you could just sort of selectively say like well I'd like it to be there you know just in case I have to go debug something but not have it show up in the run destinations menu
2: interesting
3: yeah so just go right into the devices manager and then like go right click on one here she's got a a great screenshot of like an iPad Air 10.3.1 that you can say yes do show this or or not maybe you don't care about that particular one and it sort of makes it a lot tidier it's kind of intimidating when your your screen is just filled with this unending list of uh, right. simulators that you've accumulated over the years. Like, oh, I don't even want to show those. You know, it's like I'm, it's making it hard for me to find the specific one that I tend to use or that I want to use.
2: Yeah. So, have you noticed the new simulator in um, Xcode nine beta? Played with it at all? Not much.
3: What What in particular are you, are you noticing? Well,
2: let me tell you this. So, if you if you run the simulator now, I'm just opening it up on here because on here I haven't tried it out. But um, they they the simulators in the last you know three or four years have been just a square, um, viewable screen area, right? They used to back in the early days. It was like this mock phone that hovered around the outside and made you think of like so. It looked like a phone, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, the new simulator on uh, Xcode nine has the case around it again. So there's a home button there, and you can see like the the volume up and up and down. You can see the power switch. and You can also see the the mute switch to, at the top. And what's interesting about them on this uh, new simulator is. The those actual buttons do work. So you can actually volume up and volume down and you can power on and power off and you can mute and unmute or whatever you decide that switch is going to be for you, right? So, because I guess people were, uh, or maybe there's some reason why we need to be able to have access to these things now, right? Maybe so we can simulate black box experience. Oops, did I let spoiler? But um, yeah, interesting stuff, right? I don't know if you tried them out at all. So as you hover over the buttons, they kind of they uh, pop out a little bit. So you can see that you can actually, that they're clickable. Mm-hmm. Like I just opened an app, here and I just hit the power button and it's now locked. And if I hit the home button twice, yes, it opened the app back up again. So yeah. So now we have the chin is back as well as the buttons on the side.
3: I I think that, all right, so this is a big sort of 180 in sort of Apple design philosophy for the Xcode iOS simulator, which I was like really not very happy when they decided to make it sort of chromeless where it it was just the screen and it didn't have any of the body because I would end up constantly from either people who hadn't done it before or, you know, who don't use Xcode a lot, but, you know, maybe testers and uh, designers and other folks that, you know, for reasons they want to have local copies of the iOS code and run things and check things out themselves. You would always end up with, how do I hit the home button? There's no home button on here. And you <laughs> yeah. never had that question before when they showed the frame. It's like, it looks like a home button. You hit the home button and now it's like, oh, or command double shift hit, yeah. H. Just remember that one. Command shift H will be the home button. Or it's and in the menu bar gotta, too. Yeah. And you got to like double hit that if you you want to, you know, bring up the um, multitasking mode. Right. And I'm I'm not 100% certain what those reasons were, why they decided to get rid of the Chrome, but I can speculate as to what their reasons are for bringing it back. I would speculate that given the rumors we've heard about a really nice sort of edgeless or bezel uh, you know, minimized bezel iPhone that's coming out in September, I would guess that would be part of like their sort of marketing of like, oh, look how great it is. It, it sort of is like it's Chromeless compared to these other ones that look lame and Chunky with their huge forehead and chin, and oh, by the way, as long as we're showing the Chrome it yeah, make the buttons clickable. They weren't not clickable before. So. <laughs> I think that kind of got tossed in as a, a, a nicety. Yeah,
2: well, I mean, like uh, I have a few audio apps where you know um, I can tell you that using setting up the the app to use the headphone, you know, the earbuds with the volume up and volume down and pause and play and that, that kind of stuff. There's no way to test that in the simulator. You can only do it on in um, on an actual device. But then you know you could also here you can play with the volume. Maybe if you had a volume indicator in your app, you could use the the buttons on the side here to simulate that as well, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. And if you have a custom mode for the uh, mute switch, right? Or I mean, some people use that as a uh, orientation lock, don't they? Okay? Yes. Yeah, the physical, yes. You physical can. Physical switch, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. 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 Interesting stuff. So, just uh, another aside. Sorry about that. Yeah. Well, I've got um, another tip of the week. Okay. Um,
3: this one is related to debugging UI stack views. So, I'm not going to recommend you do this in your production code, but if you're like like me, um, I was pairing up with uh, another developer. And then, you know, we've used stack views before, but not in any sort of complicated sense. And so we had sort of a semi-complicated layout that we had to implement. And we were just getting a little bit confused. So what the heck is happening here? Why why is the stack view not doing what we expect it to do? And we were using uh, programmatic layout. So that's sort of important to understand. And um, the other thing you have to recall is that stack views are uh, non-displayable views, right? They only implement layout they don't display so you can't do normal programmer tricks that I like to do of like "Uh, I'm not sure why this is laying out incorrectly Uh, make this one green and make this other thing red so I can see uh, what's happening between the two and understand the interactions right Um, another hack you can do with UI stack views is to set the view in this case your stack view to be an accessible element right so use UI accessibility stuff to, um, to set that accessible to true which it normally is not and then put an accessibility label on it, like, oh, this Mm. is the left side stack view, and this one is the upper right quadrant stack view. And then you can say, oh, oh, okay, that's what happened. That one there got, you know, messed up. Um, And you can actually just see this in the view debugger now of, like, okay, let's take a little snapshot, let's see what's happening. Oh, this label is forcing this other thing to, to be incorrect, and that's what the ambiguous layout was complaining about, or, you know, so on and so forth. So a nifty little hack, it was the sort of thing that we threw in there just to get past the question of what in the world is happening to this layout here, um, that I think would have been a whole lot harder if we had just been. Well, I hypothesize that it's this. All right, make the change, throw it in there. Nope, that's not it. Well, maybe it's this other thing, right? This like shortcut a whole bunch of those iteration loops we would have had to gone through.
2: Oh, cool idea. Well, and, and also instead of h- uh, hunting and pecking like you do in the view debugger sometimes, um, mind you that you can now label the view controllers in, in Xcode nine. But um, you can also use a recursive description to, to um, on the display to list out in text everything that's happening on the screen and then you could just do a command F and search for it, right? Yeah, we were doing the auto
3: layout trace, I think. And it was just spitting out way too much in this case Mm because this this layout was being used for uh, table cells. And then we had tons of these table cells. So sort of getting it down to just what you wanted, Um, even when you you go and monkey with a data source and say, okay, we'll only display one of these things. It was still getting sort of hairy to see what was going on with this stack view within a stack view, within a stack view inception that we had going on.
0: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: (laughs) Stack view inception. All right. That's about that. That's about all that we have to say about that. Indeed. All right. Okay. So I guess that's it for another week. So, hey, hi, If people want to get a hold of you on the interwebs, wherever they look. Best places on Twitter. I'm at dev with a hair. And hey, Mark,
4: how about you? Best places, Mark R at smapsoft.com.
2: All right. And as I said at the top of the show, I am Tim Mitra, T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A, and that's the best way to get a hold of me on Twitter. Okay. So that's it. Say goodbye. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye. That was another amazing episode of the More Than Just Code podcast. This is Sean Marston from beautiful rural England. For more about the show and the team, visit the website at mtjc.fm. There you'll find summary and show notes for each episode, and a whole load of other interesting stuff. There are links to the items talked about on the show, and app store links for the pics. You can follow on Facebook and Twitter. The podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. If you like the podcast, leave a comment on the website. If you really liked it, please write a review on iTunes or on CobraCast, press the Recommend button. If you love the show, as I do, you can show your support by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mpjc. Every dollar counts. These small things help spread the word and support the show. It's really appreciated. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. That's enough from me, but I'm going to stick around for the after show.
2: Have you guys seen some of the cool AR kit stuff on Twitter, some of the videos?
3: The coolest one that wasn't really practical, but was more of like, oh, wow, was the like the portal to another universe sort of thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, Where They yeah. walk
3: through a door, and you can, or I guess you can see through a door, you can see like this like fantasy wonderland, you step through the door, and you look back, and it looks like the real world is on the other side of the portal. Right, yeah. I thought that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's been some
2: cool stuff there. So much so yeah. that I went and downloaded uh, uh, 9 while I was on vacation, so it would be
4: but you have a device that you can put it on that uses that's uh that can use that the technology. That's the that's the problem.
2: I'm gonna go with no, <laughs> yeah.
4: yeah. You need you can install iOS 11 on I think going back to like a 5s or something like that, but mm-hmm. but you can't use any of the ARKit stuff unless it's 6s or above,
3: right? right. Oh, really? I was yeah. thinking to use my 6 plus as a test device for that, but now,
4: yeah, no, I, mean, I tried I that too. So. It doesn't work, it doesn't
3: work. All right, I'm, I'm gonna have to just sell that thing. I was like, oh, maybe I'll just keep it around like a cheap you know test device to mm-hmm, throw things mm-hmm. on and sounds like i'd be better off just selling that thing and, and buying another device for testing purposes
4: yeah just you can get a uh an se or a ipod touch latest generation that. that'll work mm-hmm. an mm-hmm. ipod touch really the latest generation yeah i think so hmm. yeah they actually still make them i was kind of surprised i looked it up a little while ago <laughs> <laughs> they don't even have their own space on the on apple's hardware page it's it's under music really oh yeah yeah hmm. yeah they must not sell many of these anymore yeah. i mean, I yeah. mean why you buy one now if it's so cheap to buy a phone?
3: I don't know. I guess if you don't have a hand me down to give
2: to the kids, I
4: guess it's the only area I can yeah. think
2: of. Um,
4: but why would you give them the latest and greatest? Why not give them something old? I don't
2: know. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, your music. Okay, right. Oh, look, iPods. Oh, yeah, yeah.
3: It does remind me that I need to go shop for an, a new iPad Pro, the 10.5 inch. Yeah, oh, yeah, I've just hmm. been uh, neglecting to do so. So hopefully, it's actually possible to, to get one, not backlog a couple months or anything. Is it? I don't know. A
2: lot of people, people have got them online. I've been seeing like I think not sure Farley got one, but a few people have got them. I think uh, Justin Stanley got one. So, mm-hmm. but no you complaints 100- is what I'm hearing. It doesn't sound like anybody's complaining Like
3: oh no, like the one I want is backlogged a month or two. It sounds like it's pretty easy to get them. Right.
2: You can get a 128 gig iPod. Mm. Wow. Still not enough to fit all my music. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you guys are for sure going to 360iDev? Uh, I, I guess you have to since you're speaking, right? Since yeah. You're speaking. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's the plan. To, oh
3: my gosh, it's about six weeks away,
2: right? Yeah, yeah. I'll it's the
3: countdown still on the website there. I
4: still haven't figured out if I'm going. I, I actually uh, reserved a room just in case. Oh, okay. And airline tickets are pretty cheap.
2: Are they? Because they were expensive yeah. for me when I looked last. Like, really? What, when, when is a good time? I, guess I was trying to figure out when is a good I time. Think, I think I already bought my tickets. So that's right. Never mind. When is a good time to buy tickets? I heard it was like two months out or something like that, or...
4: I don't know if it's that far out, but definitely on a Tuesday.
2: Tuesday, yeah, that's what I heard, right? Yeah, yep. Uh Yeah, I tend to use Google Flights
3: um, price alerts and sort of check to see, like, has it gone up or down, and it'll notify you of of major changes in the price. And I think Mm -hmm. you can set the thresholds, too. So if you're looking to sort of figure out that sort of thing, you can use that.
4: I've got tons of miles on Southwest, so if I go, I'll probably just use that, the miles.
3: Yeah. Well, if we go, uh, apparently we can go to Casa Bonita, which is, <laughs> I, I, so have you seen the South Park episode? I thought it was like just a made up thing, you know, cause South Park, yeah, ostensibly takes place in Colorado, but they, right. they make up a lot of stuff. Oh, really? It yeah. doesn't exist. And I guess Casa Bonita, this like apparently weirdly extravagant uh, Mexican place where they have like a waterfall that supposedly like a guy could like dive off of it and everything. It, it takes uh, sort of center stage in, in one episode with cart. Mm. Uh, where he desperately wants to go there. And I saw a tweet go by from the 360 and dev, the Android dev conference go by like, oh yeah, like post-conference, you know, who wants to go to this? I was like, what? It's like, that's a real thing. It's like, man, we should totally go to on 360 <laughs> iDev there and like go check this place out. Get some Mexican food, check off the um, South Park sort of bucket list.
4: So according to Wikipedia, it's a former chain, uh, but as of 2015, only one location remains open in the Western Denver suburb of Lakewood, Colorado. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you guys both say something at the same time? Yes. Especially Tim while you're drinking a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> Why? See if you guys are if I mean is actually a real person. Oh, I see, right. Just kidding.
3: Mm-hmm. Still, Tim having the like one side Victor Victoria style where you're just like half your face is one and half is the other.
2: hmm mm-hmm. Yep. I always said it was a dev with a hair.
1: Planning for your next trip?